0: If you uh, peeked inside your bulletin already this morning, you probably have already seen the sermon title and the passage we're going to be in there in John, which means you almost certainly know a little of something about the fourth sign of John's gospel that we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, regardless of your Bible, your level of Bible knowledge or how much you have or have not attended church in your life, chances are you know something about this story. It's considered by many to be the most well-known of all of Jesus's Miracles, And so as we look at a familiar story again this morning, I want to focus on those aspects that are unique to John. So if all, all four of the gospel writers are telling this about the same event, um, what is John's contribution? What are those unique things that John is contributing? And there's five things I want to focus on this morning. And all of them, for the sake of you know, ease of taking notes, start with the letter P, so get ready to write words that start with the letter P for you note-takers. By the way, for you note-takers, I still have something in my Bible that belongs to somebody. Look at those notes. Look how, look how well someone filled up all the white space on their bulletin with their notes. Please come claim this, whoever this belongs to. I'm, I'm not going to throw it away. You have to come and get it from me, okay, and the rest of you. I want to see this happening in your bulletins today. All right. The five Ps we're going to be looking at here. Turn, turn with me to John chapter 6. I'm going to read the first 15 verses here. And um, we're going to look at the fourth of John's sign passages uh, on Jesus feeding the 5,000. Beginning here in verse 1. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, "'Where can we buy bread?' To feed all these people. He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, Even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what good is that with this huge crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, Now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, Surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. Now, as I mentioned already, this is the only miracle, aside, I guess, from the resurrection, that is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. But I'm interested in John's take, especially in light of the larger themes and emphases of John's Gospel. Now, one of the keys to really understanding John's gospel is, is to keep in mind that he's not writing his gospel with, with the goal of sticking to a strict chronology of events. Okay, so he's not writing primarily as a historian as much as he's writing as a theologian. He's organizing his gospel theologically. He's trying to make certain points. And that is hugely helpful to us as we come to any of the passages in his gospel, especially this one here today. Which brings us to our first P, and that is the presence of the reference to the Passover. He's the only one that that places the statement about the Passover right here. And in our Bibles, in the NLT at least, it appears as like a parenthetical statement, almost like John is sort of adding this parenthetically to, to make some sort of larger point. Now, this is the second of three times that John will mention the Passover in John's Gospel. And I'm convinced that the mentioning of it here in this passage is not meant to to sort of help us locate the exact moment in time that this event took place, so so much as it's meant to establish a theological context for what's going on here. There's something theologically John wants us to understand about the feeding of the multitudes. And he uses the reference to Passover to help make that point. Passover, of course, is that... Jewish celebration that celebrated the Israelites' exodus from Egypt. And whenever the, the, the Jewish people would celebrate Passover, they would slaughter a lamb, one for each household, a substitutionary atonement, as it were, that the family would then consume as part of their observance. But from the beginning of John's gospel all the way back in chapter 1, John has made it clear that it is Jesus who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. That comes right from the mouth of John the Baptist himself. As Jesus arrives on the scene, we we see the the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. From that point on, John wants us to identify Jesus as the Lamb of God. So consider each mention of Passover in that light. The first mention is back in chapter 2, when we're told Jesus went to... To Jerusalem for Passover, and he's in the temple, and he clears the temple, and then he says what about the temple? He says, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it. But John tells us in verse 21 exactly what Jesus was talking about. He's not talking about the physical, literal structure of the temple. He's talking about what? His body. Destroy my body, and I will raise it in three days. And so right there from the very first mentioning of Passover in John's gospel, you have the connection to Jesus' death on the cross. The third mention at the end really covers the whole second half of John's gospel. Jesus is back in Jerusalem for Passover, and from chapter 12 all the way to the end, it's the story of the whole second half of the gospel is Jesus in Jerusalem for Passover and his own crucifixion. And so John has arranged his gospel with these mentioning of Passover over and over again to make the connection of, G, to, of Jesus to the Passover lamb. And in this passage, he does the same thing, although it's a little harder to see. It's not as apparent or obvious when we first read it. Jesus, the one who feeds the 5,000 around Passover, is the Lamb of God. And the connection is found later in the chapter, which we didn't read this morning, for, for the sake of time. If I had, had continued reading, we would, have, we would have seen where Jesus walked on the water, and then the next day, he's, he's addressing the multitudes that he has just fed. And it's called the bread of life discourse, where he's explaining the meaning of all these things. And, and really, as we're, as we're thinking about this feeding of the 5,000, you, you can't you can't address it in a vacuum. You have to take it in, in, within context of the larger conversation of Jesus later in there in chapter 6. It is there in that bread of life discourse where Jesus makes this radical connect, connection that you and I need his help to make to connect the dots, where he connects the manna that God gave the Israelites to sustain them in the wilderness. He connects the manna in the wilderness to his own flesh, which he calls the true bread of heaven. So you see, Jesus in his own mind, as he's thinking about bread, and he's breaking bread, and he's giving bread, he's talking about bread, and he says, the bread points to my body, which is given for you. Verse 53, to the people, the very people he's feeding in this passage, the next day he's going to say in verse 53, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life in you. All that to say this, this seemingly parenthetical statement in chapter 6, where John just sort of throws in there that, oh, by the way, it was nearly time for the Passover celebration. He's the only gospel writer to give us that indication. This seemingly parenthetical reference ends up theologically governing the entire passage. We're going to think about the entire passage in light of that parenthetical statement, it's central to John's gospel. It's central to this, his account of what happened here. Jesus is the lamb. Jesus' flesh is the bread from heaven. This is not just about provision for a particular meal. This story is about Jesus' provision for our salvation. Jesus alone sustains. Jesus alone saves. Jesus alone is the author of life and the giver of new life we have to think about everything that happens here in that light. So there they are in the hill country east of the Sea of Galilee, fresh off the news of John the Baptist's death. By the way, that's not in John's gospel, but it's in the other gospels. Jesus has learned about John the Baptist's death, and so he retreats into the wilderness. And his disciples there are faced with the challenge of feeding all of these people in the middle of nowhere. Listen, I have a hard enough time figuring out what to feed the five of us right here at home every day. It's, it is the, the daily angst of my life to think of something to eat for dinner. D- am I the only one that's struggling with this? Okay, so it, the, the problem is real. All right, Angela just threw her shoulder out raising her hand so high as fast as she could. It, the problem is real, but it's nothing like this problem, okay? In the middle of nowhere, no food in sight, and a gigantic multitude of people to, to take care of, And there they are, and I love what happens in verses five and six. Look at verse five again. Jesus sees the crowd, he turns to Philip, and by the way, that's our second P. The the mentioning of Philip and the, the discussion that takes place between him and Jesus, that's unique also to the Gospel of John. So verse five, Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? Now, We'll get to verse 6 in a minute because verse, verse 6 is going to disclose to us that Jesus actually has ulterior motives with his question. You know, one of the best tools that a teacher has at his or her disposal is the asking of good questions. You, you know that some of the best teachers in your life are the ones who, who ask questions not because they were ignorant or because they needed you to answer the question for them, but because the question provoked your own thinking. The question sort of solicited your participation, and it. It, it, it got you involved. You weren't just mindlessly sort of listening to someone drone on and on and on. You were a, a participant in whatever the discussion was. It's a sort of dialogical method of learning. It's very helpful. I actually, by the way, am terrible at asking good questions. It's one of my great weaknesses as a teacher. I'm much more suited to just be the one that drones on and on and on, and those of you who listen to me teach know what I'm talking about. It's, it's the greatest challenge for me is thinking of really great questions. But Jesus knows exactly what he's doing here. Jesus is not ignorant of the situation. Jesus is not caught off guard or stumped by the crowds or the needs. And Jesus happens to know, by the way, where the nearest grocery store is too. He's not asking this out of his ignorance or his ineptitude. Jesus, the master teacher, has a plan in mind for this scenario. And John tells us as much in verse 6. He was testing Philip for he already knew what he was going to do. You know, I could preach a whole sermon just on that verse. I could preach a whole series on just that verse, on how Jesus takes the problems in our lives and turns them into opportunities to cultivate faith. You all, those of you who have walked with Jesus, know exactly what I'm talking about where some situation came up in life that you didn't have an answer for, and you were really concerned or stumped, you were confused, you were disheartened, and yet you found that through it, the Lord was working to do something significant to bring you to a place where your faith was strengthened. Your your faith was emboldened. You came to know something more about Jesus as a result of the struggle than you would have known otherwise without it. And I just wonder if we as a people of faith might be willing to view all of our problems in this light. How, how often are you like, more like Philip there in verse 7 in his response? Look at his response there in verse 7. Even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them all. Philip, I think, is like many of us. He's a pragmatist. He's being very logical here. In his mind, he looked at the equation. Many people, no food equals, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing that we can do here. Philip sees the problem, but he has no practical solution. But here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus's solutions are seldom practical, and they're almost never expected. What if you and I viewed all of our problems in that light? What if you and I, as we faced a challenge or faced a struggle, faced a situation that brought great... You know, angst or fear or discomfort. And we said, you know what? Jesus is already aware of this. In fact, Jesus saw this coming. Jesus already has a plan. Jesus already has a solution. Jesus has a purpose in mind for this. But one that on the surface I have to be ready to accept may not seem exactly practical. Practical one that is not how I would expect him to, do, to, to, to resolve it. He's going to work in such a way that's probably going to blow my mind and really going to stretch me and test my ability to say yes to him all the time. What if Jesus is engineering your circumstances that they might become fertile soil for faith to grow? That would change your circumstances, wouldn't it? It would change how you viewed every situation in life. What would the logical, practical solution be? What do you think Philip's sort of, you know, I said, gave you the equation many people, no food equals what? What was the what? Send everybody home. <laughs> of course. Send them home, Jesus. There's no other solution here. We can't feed them. We know, we know, the closest, I know, the gro- by the way, Jesus asked Philip because he was from nearby Bethsaida, back from chapter 1, I believe, verse 44. So Jesus asked him that because he knew that Philip knew where the nearest grocery store was. And Philip's response was, even though I know where the nearest grocery store is, it would take eight months of wages to feed everybody tonight. It's it's practically impossible, Jesus. So send them home. But if Jesus had done that, if he had listened to Philip, if Philip had had his way, what a miracle would have been missed. What a sign would have been missed. And it makes me wonder as I think about my own walk with God and I think about our church and I think about your individual walks with God, I wonder how many of us individually and I wonder how many whole churches have missed out on the miraculous because of their practical thinking. I was doing the math in my my head the other day and I think I've concluded that in my nearly five years as the lead pastor here, I have attended about 57 Board of Steward meetings. 57. That's many, many hours of meeting, let me tell you. And I wonder, as I think about those meetings, how many solutions to issues and problems did we come up with based on pragmatism instead of faith? I wonder. Now, this by, by no means is to be critical of our board of stewards at all. I love our board of stewards every year. It is a delight to, to, to be on. I'm part of the board, too, by the way, according to our discipline. Board of stewards and the pastor. We, we constitute a single team of leadership. So this is not me casting stones at anyone or any group. It's, it's if anything, It's at myself as much as anyone. And and I'm not even saying we haven't relied on faith. I'm just wondering, how many times as we approached a crisis or had a a problem, did we seek to address it and come up with a solution based on pragmatism and not faith? Not that we should never use logic or reasoning in our decision-making. Of course we should. God has made us rational beings, and, and as we submit all of ourselves to Christ and are filled with his spirit and we ask his spirit to touch every dimension of who we are obviously that touches how we view things how we see things how we make decisions how we think how we process of course we need God's sanctifying touch even there and we're not we don't cease to be rational when we when we exercise faith but I wonder if sometimes our tendency not just on the board but in our individual think about your own walk with God In our own individual lives, I wonder if sometimes our tendency to rely almost exclusively on what makes sense or what is practical, that we do so because of an absence of faith. It just makes more sense to do it this way. I'm a pretty reasonable person, pretty rational person. This makes sense. may not be what I feel like Jesus is telling me to do, but hey, this makes a whole lot more sense than what Jesus seems to be telling me to do. You know, the most amazing things that I've ever seen Jesus do in my life Came not when things made sense and I was being sensible. No, it came when I was trusting and obeying in faith. Even when things made no sense at all. This is the second week in a row that I mentioned his name. But I see Patrick Whipple nodding his head back there. The man building a boat. A boat. Is there anything practical about building a boat? Well, not to me anyway. To them it makes perfect sense. But to me it makes no sense. They're stepping out in faith. It doesn't have to make sense. Jesus isn't asking you to make the sensible choice. Jesus is asking you to say yes to him. Philip, it doesn't matter that there's so many people here. It doesn't matter that you don't have eight months wages to go buy the food for everybody. It doesn't matter. What matters is that I'm here. I've got a plan in mind for this. Oh, what would have been missed if Philip had had his way. And not just the sign, not just the miracle, but the glory that it pointed to. The whole point of the signs to begin with. It's not just to dazzle us and make us be astounded at the the magic or the, the, the tantalizing things that Jesus can do. The signs reveal his glory. What glory would have been missed if Philip had had his way, what glory has been missed? What beautiful self-disclosure of the very person of Jesus to your life has been missed because you chose something based on your rationality or your practicality and not because of your faith? I don't want to miss a single iota of Jesus' personal self-disclosure to my life. So I'm challenged by his conversation with Philip. Philip. Our second P. I'm going to give you the third and fourth right here together. We'll call them, it's a fancy word, it's a Greek word, Pyderion. I will spell it when I want to. No, I'm just kidding. It's, <laughs> don't tell me what to do, Carol. P A I D A D, as in dog, A. R-I-O-N. That's the English transliteration from the Greek, paedareon. And the other P here is panera. It's the best I could do with what I had to work with. I'm referring to the little boy and his bread. <laughs> paedareon is Greek for a little boy. Or servant, young servant, which is significant here in a minute. Piderion and the type of pan, <laughs> bread, it's not Greek, pan, but the bread, the, the barley loaf or loaves. Those are the next couple P's that are unique to John. The mentioning of the servant in the type of bread that he had. Why does John mention them? Well, I think on the surface there's some immediate reasons that we can point to that make a lot of sense. For starters, the barley was the, was the cheap, that kind of bread was the cheap bread for poor people. So this isn't like the really nice bread that you go to the fancy bakery to get. The kind that like, you walk in and the aroma hits your face, and you're just like, suddenly you're like the most starving person on the planet. Because is there anything that smells better than fresh baked good bread? All right, no, this is, this is cheap bread. It's not even really a loaf, it's more like a little cake, a little barley, kind of nasty cake. And the, the fish, by the way, weren't these huge, like, nice, you know, big salmon steaks you know, that you throw on the grill and you baste with the teriyaki and, you know, no. These are just like little pickled fish that served as a side to a kind of lame meal. The point is, a little boy offering that is about the most pathetically inadequate inadequ- solution to the problem of feeding 5,000, well, 5,000 men. We're looking at upwards of ten to 20,000 total people. And so John gives us these details at first, just to underscore just how dire the situation was, how, how little Jesus had to work with, so to speak, to solve the problem. But I think John mentions the Pydarion and the type of bread, not only to heighten the miracle, but to make a larger theological point. And for that, we have to turn somewhere else in the Bible. We're going to go to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4 is going to be on the screen, so you don't have to turn if you don't want to. If you have one of the guest Bibles, it's page 304. But listen to this story from the time of Elisha, and listen for all the ways that it it sounds a lot like the story we just read about Jesus. Beginning in verse 42, one day, a man from Baal, Shalisha, brought the man of God, that's Elisha, a sack of fresh grain and 20 loaves of barley bread, made from the first grain of the harvest. Elisha said, give it to the people so they can eat. This is during a famine, by the way. What? What? his young servant exclaimed. By the way, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the word there is, you guessed it, pydarion. What? His pydarion exclaimed. Feed a hundred people with only this? But Elisha repeated, give it to the people so they can eat, for this is what the Lord says, everyone will eat and there will even be some left over. And when they gave it to the people, There was plenty for all and some left over, just as the Lord had promised. Now, you don't have to be a highly trained biblical scholar to begin making the connections between this story from 2 Kings and what's happening here as John sees the connection. The mode of narration is the same. You have the problem of a lack of food. You have the problem of too many people for what has been presented. You have the question of disbelief. You have the command to distribute loaves. You have the sudden, sudden sufficiency of the amount, and you even have the leftovers at the end. The man brought Elijah 20 loaves of what kind of bread? Barley bread. The servant, in the Greek translation of the, of the Septuagint of the Old Testament, is Pyderion. Do you know the only occurrence of Pyderion in the entire Greek New Testament is where? John chapter six. Do you think that was a coincidence that John chose that word to tell this story in this way? What is the point? Well, I think John sees the connection between what Jesus is doing and who Jesus is and the event Of Elijah. And by the way, Elisha and representative of all the prophets. Because it demonstrates that not only is Jesus like them in the sense they come, you know, they came from, they represent God, they speak on behalf of God, they've come to do God's work in the world. But I think he's also making the point that he's not only like them, he's greater than them. Here's one who did something like what Elisha did, but look how much better. Jesus feeds more with less. Elisha, you fed a hundred. Jesus feeds a hundred times a hundred. Jesus is not only uniquely fit to meet the needs of all, Jesus is better than whatever has come before him. And like all the previous signs that we've looked at here, John is pointing out the all-surpassing sufficiency and superiority of Christ to anything else by comparison. But as we've said from the very beginning, our very first P, John wants us to interpret all these things and see all these things in light of the, the governing theological idea of the Passover. So in that light, if we take what we've already said about Passover and Jesus as the Lamb of God, who's come to take away the sins of the world, whose flesh is the true bread of heaven, and if this story tells that Jesus is supreme over all that has come before him, and he is all-sufficient, and he is, he is all-surpassing everything before and everything that has come since, then you and I can be certain that the feeding of the 5,000 declares that there is nothing more supreme or sufficient than Jesus' sacrifice for your sins. All of your sins. Every single one of them. There's not one of them that you can say, well, Jesus' sacrifice wasn't sufficient for that. And I know you might, you, you are like like I can be. You, you might at times think about something you said or did or something you, you desired and acted out on, and you think, I'm the dirtiest, rottenest person that ever lived. There's no way Jesus could be pleased with me. There's no way Jesus... Jesus is happy with me. He doesn't want, he's disgusted with my life. And you you put all these things in. By the way, those come from the enemy of your soul. He is sufficient for it all. Every bit of it. Everything you've ever done wrong and everything you ever could do has been atoned for once for all time. One sacrifice. Forever. Forever. And when you present that stuff to him, <laughs> he wipes the slate clean. Not like the whiteboard I tend to teach from in the various places where I write something and wipe it and there's like black smudge everywhere and I have to go and get some rubbing alcohol and then wipe, finally get, no. Clean. Not a smudge left. Not a, not a bit remains. You can be washed as clean and pure as the wind-driven snow. In Christ, in the all-sufficient salvation he provides, you have power in his resurrection over all of the world, all of the flesh, and all of the devil. So stop stop telling yourself and the people around you that you're nothing more than just a sinner because you're not. You are more than conquerors. Because the same spirit, the same life-giving spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is the one who abides in you today. You are more than conquered because of Jesus. Don't miss the lavishness of the supply. Don't miss that. That's so important. It's not, it itself is not particularly unique in John. The others talk about the leftovers. but, But don't miss the lavishness of the supply John says they all ate as much as they wanted. They had a feast. They were stuffed. It's like going to Captain George's. Fifteen trips to the crab legs bar. Stuffed to the brim. They ate every bit that they wanted. There was not, they didn't eat until the food ran out. They ate until they could eat no more. And it says there's still more left over than what they had at the start. 12 baskets were told. Is there any significance in the Bible to the number 12? What does it tend to symbolize or represent? The 12 tribes of Israel. Do you think that Jesus multiplied those elements to the point that there were that many left over to make a point? I think what he's saying is I, not the law and the prophets, Not Elisha, not Elijah, not Moses, not anybody. I alone am sufficient for Israel. Twelve baskets full tell tell that truth. I am enough for Israel. And by the way, in Matthew and Mark, there's a second feeding of the multitude story. Did you know that? You've got the feeding of the 5,000 recorded in all four Gospels, but in Matthew and Mark, there's later a feeding of the 4,000. And do you know how many baskets were left over after the feeding of the 4,000? Seven, thank you, Pat. Gold star to Pat Mouton. (laughs) Seven baskets. You know, traditionally, scholars and Bible students have interpreted the feeding of the 4,000 and the seven baskets left over there to symbolize the Gentiles. So, to me, it's saying that Jesus is sufficient for all of Israel. Jesus is all sufficient for everybody else. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins, not just of a certain group of people or a certain demographic, all the sins of all the people of all the world. My people, the Lord declares in Jeremiah 31, will be satisfied with my goodness. And the NIV, I think, does it even better. It renders it filled with my bounty. In Jesus, you and I receive grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. What riches Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, what wealth, what superabundant, exorbitant overflow that we have in Him. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ life, breath, salvation, forgiveness, redemption, adoption, holiness. His whole life made available to us, with us, for us, in us, from His inexhaustible supply. What. Riches we have in Christ. What lavish supply. But it's only in Christ that that supply is available. Christ is the sphere in which all the blessings of God are available to the world. There's no other channel, there's no other avenue by which you can receive the fullness of the blessings of God. It is only in Christ. And that brings us, for those of you taking notes, I know someone out there is, because I have proof. To our last P word of the unique, one of the unique features of John, the fifth and final P word, the people's reaction. The people's reaction. The reference to Passover, you see, not only helps us connect the dots theologically between the feeding of the 5,000 and Christ's work on the cross, it also helps us understand the people's reaction here in verse 14. Look again at verse 14. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. Now, of course, they're referring to the promise of Deuteronomy 18 of another prophet that would one day come who would be like Moses. And so you can imagine as the people were sitting here connecting their own dots, they were Bible students. They knew what the promises of the scriptures were. They understood things theologically, and they they had some degree of sense of what was going on and what to expect. And in their minds, it it seemed to make perfect sense. If one like Moses is coming and Moses led the people out of captivity to to Egypt, well, then it stands to reason that if Jesus is that one, he's going to do what? He's going to lead us from captivity from Rome. That's the practical, logical assumption. It makes perfect sense. We need to make him our king. That's exactly what they had in mind. And of course, the Passover was more than just a feast that remembered the, the mighty acts of God's salvation. It was a rallying point for nationalistic zeal. It's kind of like their 4th of July. The 4th of July has come. This guy just did something like, like the prophets do. And there was a promise of one like Moses, so let's put on our stars and stripes, make him our king, and let's finish this thing. Those weren't Jesus' plans at all, were they? No, his plans were much greater. Yes, his plans were to lead people out of captivity, but it wasn't captivity to some earthly empire. No, his plans were to lead people out of captivity to sin, which is a much greater problem than any oppressed people in the world by some regime. I know the situation in North Korea is dire, and I would never make light of that or, or diminish the the horrible atrocities and violation of human rights that are seen there, but listen, there is no greater enemy to your soul than sin. That is the enemy, and Jesus' plans were to, were to address that. And that, and this brings us to the final lesson from this unique perspective that John gives us of this event. It's that Jesus will not allow Himself to be taken captive to our lesser expectations. He won't let you do it. Look at verse 15. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. The people had witnessed the signs of Jesus' power to heal. They now saw Jesus' power to provide But because they failed to see the glory that the signs pointed to, Jesus became to them nothing more than someone who had come to fulfill their own hopes and dreams. What do I want most? Well, Jesus will provide it. What do I think will make me happy? What do I think will make me satisfied? What do I think will will provide for for my sense of my needs for peace and, and for plenty? What will make me content? Well, Jesus can make it happen. But listen, if your desires are only ever on what you think Jesus should do for you and never for Jesus himself, Jesus is going to break your heart. He's going to break your heart. You might never hear that again from this pulpit, that Jesus will break your heart. But he will if you only care about what you think he should do for you And you never desire him. Jesus will break your heart. That's because Jesus flees from every expectation laid upon his person and his purpose that is detached from his cross. He flees from it. Don't believe me? Ask Peter. Hey, Peter, remember that time that you rebuked Jesus when he talked about dying on a cross? How did that go? How did Jesus respond to that little tidbit? He called him Satan. The strongest rebuke I can think of from the Lord himself. Get behind me, Satan. That's because Peter's messianic expectations did not have anywhere in the calculus the death of the Messiah. It didn't fit in his categories. This is, this is what the Messiah should be. Jesus just said this. He's got to be wrong. I need to fix him. I need to correct him so he gets it right. Do you see how ridiculous that is? It's just as ridiculous as the people here in verse 15 trying to force him to be their king so there'd be some sort of like, political rev- revolutionary that leads them out of their bondage. And Jesus flees from and, cr- and rebukes it every single time. His kingdom would triumph, but it won't be by killing it won't be by conquering, it would be by surrendering, and it would be by dying. Jesus does go to Jerusalem, but not to wield the, the spear and bring the judgment. He goes to receive the spear and bear the judgment. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild he may be, but he will never be held captive to your will. Only the Father's will. And there's a whole lot of us in here, I dare say, as we think about and assess with the Holy Spirit's help, our relationship to Jesus are going to have to come to terms with that. He's not here to just do what you ask him to do. He's not in your life to, to sort of satisfy all of your needs and all of your desires. doesn't mean he doesn't love you. just means he knows what's best for you. And he's here to do his Father's will in your life with not just earthly consequences in mind, he's thinking eternity. The question is, will you seek to make him captive to you, or will you finally let that go and surrender yourself and allow him to make you captive to himself? That's the question. That's the question. Passover, Philip, Piderion and Panera. thank you for get, being gracious toward me throughout Panera there. The people. It's not every single thing unique to John, but these are the five that really stood out to me this week. And I'm wondering what do they all together tell us? What tells us these things? In every circumstance you find yourself in, good or in bad, with plenty or with nothing, in the miraculous or in the tragic, Jesus sees, Jesus knows, and Jesus has plans to cultivate and to produce faith in your life. I hope that helps you in whatever you're facing today. I hope it breathes new life into your perspective of what you're going through. I know many of you are going through a lot of things. I hope you see it in that light. What is Jesus doing? He's not caught off guard by this. He's not stumped or surprised or scrambling to come up with it. No, he has been in front of it. And while he doesn't make everything happen, he does in his providence permit certain things to happen and sometimes those things are not they don't seem good and they are there is evil in the world and there is suffering but don't think for a second that god has abandoned you in it or that he's not in it somehow he's there and he's engineering your circumstances that they might become fertile soil for your faith to grow and no matter how much of the personal self-disclosure of jesus you may have missed in the past he's here to make himself known to you afresh today if you'll hear his word. These five Ps tell us also that Jesus is greater than all who has come before him and all who have ever come since. Don't miss the lavishness of God's grace upon grace available to you in him. There is no real blessing to be had in life apart from Jesus. There's not. The, the people out there who are chasing, you know, health and wealth and happiness. That's an empty pursuit. Because at the end of the day, the only one who truly su- supplies what we need, the only one who really satisfies, and he does so lavishly, is God's only son. And you cannot separate any th- bit of his glory, his, the revelation of his self-disclosure, from his cross. The cross, you see, reveals his heart. And his cross lies at the heart of all his purposes for your life. He hasn't come into your life for you to mold him and and conform him to your own earthly plans and purposes. No, he has come to incorporate you into his mighty acts of salvation and his heavenly plans and purposes. Don't waste another second of your life trying to force Jesus, to become captive to your lesser expectations. All of this, John writes, all of these things, he writes that you might believe, and that by believing in him, you would have life, capital L. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we, we surrender our expectations, we surrender our will, we surrender our desires, all the things that, that motivate and move us and give shape to what we think and how we act. Lord, we surrender all, of those, all of those things to you. And we ask you to come and take captive us surrendered. Conform us to your will. Conform us and incorporate us into your great Acts and plans and the things that you are doing in the world are so so much better and so much bigger than anything that we could have ever imagined. Lord, free us from our pragmatism, from only making decisions that seem logical or seem within our control or our grasp. Lord, free us to step out boldly in faith, to do things that the world says that's outrageous. Who in their right mind would do such a thing? Well, we will. We will. Lord, our minds are never more right than when we are walking with you in faith, step by step. Lord, we trust in your ability to provide. We, we stake our lives upon the all-surpassing sufficiency and superiority of you over all else. And we trust you. At the end of the day, we trust you. We may not know where you're leading us or why, but we know you and we trust you. May that be the the defining attribute of our walk of faith, Lord, I pray. For your sake and for your glory, in Christ's name, amen.